Well, happy Lord's Day and Merry Christmas. It is a time to celebrate. And, and why do we gather to celebrate? Because God the Father sent God the Son to be conceived in the womb of a virgin by God the Holy Spirit so that he might join us to himself and his perfect life and we might be free from the death wrought by our first father, Adam. We can move, because of Christ, from being dead in Adam to alive in him. This is why we celebrate. Because at Christmas, God the Son took a second nature onto himself. He became a man. He became what he was not, while never ceasing to be what he was. This is perhaps the supreme miracle in Christianity. The creator enters his creation. The author of history writes himself in as the protagonist, as that great dragon slayer who saves his people from Satan's power and might, from sin and death and dungeon, and even the wrath our sins have earned. Indeed, this is a season for those of us who know the good news, for those who are in Christ, to rejoice. In fact, Matthew has written his gospel to the end of us rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that the prince who was promised, the savior king who is to come and deliver his people from the kingdom of darkness, has come and is named Jesus because, he writes in chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah king and he has the credentials of a king. Matthew lays out his qualifications in those first few chapters. Remember, Jesus comes from the right family. He's from the line of David. He is a son of Abraham. He brings blessing to the nations. He comes from the right family. He has fulfilled the right prophecies. He's born of a virgin in Bethlehem. In fact, he even looks a little bit like Moses in Israel. Like Moses, his life is under threat from a murderous king in his infancy, and he has to flee. Like Israel, he comes out of Egypt, passes through waters, waters of baptism, goes into the wilderness, where he's tempted by the devil and tested and tried, and then eventually comes to a mountain where he proclaims the word of God, as if he speaks with the voice of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has the right credentials. He has the authority of a king. He speaks with the authority of a king. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus declaring, I have brought a kingdom with me. I am the king. And if you want to enter into my kingdom, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, then you must become poor in spirit and depend not on your own righteousness, but on my righteousness. You must come to me in humility 
Acknowledge me as your king, turning from your sin, turning from your dependence on yourself and depend on me. And when you're in my kingdom, not only must you depend on me, but then you must live like me. Jesus, in that Sermon on the Mount, authoritatively calls people to himself and to holiness. His people will live as kingdom citizens in the world. And lest we think Jesus is all talk, he then shows us that he can indeed walk the walk. Everywhere he goes, a little bit like Mary and her little lamb, the kingdom of God is sure to follow. He comes down from that outdoor pulpit preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and a leper approaches him, and Jesus heals him with a touch. Still on his way home, a centurion comes to him, tells him the sickness of his servant, and Jesus heals the servant with a word. When he gets to Peter's house, he heals Peter's mother-in-law with both a touch and a word. The fever leaves her. He heals a host of others. I mean, that's just the first part of chapter 8. Then the, the really awesome stuff starts to happen. He and his disciples are on a boat. They're, they're traveling to the land of the Gadarenes. And a storm rises, a seismos megas, an earthquake of a storm. And the disciples uh, think that they are going to die. They, they come to Jesus say, we are dying. And, and Jesus stands up and he tells the storm to sit down. And the winds and the waves obey him. This, of course, gives rise to a series of questions that sort of drive the narrative at this point. The disciples say, who then is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? We find the answer in the mouths of demons once Jesus gets to that land of the Gadarenes. They fall down before him and say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Jesus then casts them into the pigs and into the sea of chaos from which they came. And that's not even the best part. That's not even the most impressive thing Jesus has done yet. We get to the beginning of chapter 9, and a paralytic man is brought to him. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It's the most incredible thing. The man's offenses against the holy God who made him, for which he deserves to suffer in hell into eternity, are forgiven with a word from the Lord Jesus Christ. And lest we think his words can't accomplish what he wills or that they lack power, he says, oh, you, don't, you think that's just talk? Words are just wind? Let me show you that his sins are forgiven. He says, all right, get up and go home, man. And the paralytic rises, takes up his mat, and goes home. Jesus is a king. He's the Messiah king. Indeed, he is God in the flesh. Matthew wants us to know this. He wants us to know that he is a king for us. That, that question we ask, why, why did God become a man? Why Christmas? And the answer is to save sinners. God the Son took on flesh so that he might save you and I. The God of the universe 
took up residence in the womb of a virgin girl and swam in amniotic fluid, developed eyes, ears, nostrils, a mouth, hands, and feet. Why? So that nails could be driven through those hands and those feet. So that mouth could call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. He was born so he might die. So that you and I, by trusting in him, might be born again. When Jesus shows up, it's to save sinners. And that's what we see in our little pericope this morning. We we are in verses 9 through 17, and we covered the first few of those last week. Remember, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst. And the Pharisees sort of come to his disciples and they're like, this guy? Like, he's a drunk and a glutton. Why is, he, why is he partying with sinners? And Jesus catches wind of this, and he gives us his mission statement in verse 13. Well, the very last part there, you can see it in your Bibles. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He had hit him with that proverb earlier, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, the sick. Really what he's saying is it's not those who think they are right with God that I've come to save. They think they're good. They don't think they need the great physician. I've come to call those who are sinners and who recognize their need of me. Maybe you're, you're here this morning just out of tradition. It's Christmas time and so I go to church on Christmas you don't really have a relationship with Jesus, but, but friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ came so that you could be adopted into the family of God by trusting him. That's why he came. And maybe you're going, I'm just, I'm too sinful. You don't understand what my life is like. And Jesus says, I came for sinners. I came to save sinners. He calls you to himself, and anyone who comes to him, he will never cast out. He'll change you. He'll change your whole life. But if you come to Jesus in true repentant faith, he's never letting you go. Not even death can take you out of his hands. He's got that kind of power. He's that kind of king. Indeed, when he came as the newborn king at Christmas, he also came as the bridegroom. That gets us to our text this morning, and you're going, wow, that was a lengthy introduction. I know, what can I say? It's Christmas. Uh, Felt like giving good gifts. Jesus is the bridegroom. That is the heartbeat of our passage this morning. And You know, you came here to celebrate Christmas this morning, and so I figured we would make it a Christmas wedding of sorts. And so you can see in your outline, we're going to talk about something old, something new, something borrowed, and something true. Very clever, I know. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something true. And the sections will get progressively smaller, so don't worry when you're like, It's been a really long time, and we are not halfway there yet. We are. We're going to get there. With that said, let's pray and focus our attention on the Lord this morning. Father, we love you. And we've learned to love you, not because 
we have eyes to see. We, we were blind. We were dead in our sins. We love you because you have given yourself to us, because you have made us alive by your Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've put your Spirit into us so that we can call out to you as Father. That we love you because you first loved us. And we express our delight in you by obeying your word. By coming together on this Sunday morning to give you praise and honor and glory. And Lord, we rejoice before you now. Let our songs and our thoughts and the preaching of your word and the listening of your word and our feasting under the Lord Jesus Christ be pleasant in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 9 You'll notice there have been questions to this point. Who is this man that he commands the winds and the waves? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The demons ask. This man is blaspheming, which is sort of a question that comes from the Pharisees when he forgives a man's sins. And then, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, is asked. I think that's the Pharisees. The scribes came before. And then this morning, we have the disciples of John. That's John the Baptist, who is likely in prison at this point. And they come asking Jesus a question. All of these questions are a little bit controversial. Jesus has upset the apple cart of that which is normative, 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 because he is bringing something new. We read. Then the disciples of John came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I understand a little bit of their pushback. It is a custom in Judaism to fast. But it's never a command. So it's important to note that, that Jesus is not breaking the law of God here. The only place in the whole Bible where fasting is commanded is in Leviticus 16, and even there, the command is one that we have to infer. It's not explicit. The people are told to afflict themselves in light of the Day of Atonement. They're, they're not to work. And this became tied to fasting, and I think appropriately so, and we see description of fasting throughout the Bible, but only commanded in one place, on one day a year, one time a year. And the Pharisees, who are good, serious, you know, Bible-believing folk, what they've done is they've come along and said, if it's good to fast once a year, it's probably really good to fast more often. How about once a week? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Actually, let's make it twice a week. And see, fasting, which is a, a practice that is aimed at humbling oneself before the Lord, became this occasion not to humble oneself before the Lord, but to lift oneself up in the eyes of other men. Jesus speaks to this custom in, in Luke chapter 18 when he tells a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And Jesus fronts the parable, or Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who were trusting in themselves for righteousness. And if you remember the story, uh, the tax collector, he's going to pray to God and he beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he goes down to his house justified. Whereas the Pharisee, well, he's confident in his own righteousness. 
and look where he hangs his righteousness, his confidence. Luke chapter 18, verse 11, he prays thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, fasting had become part of the fabric of Judaism, the custom, part of how they honored God. Jesus even addresses it in the Sermon on the Mount as one of those shows of outward piety. He says, hey, when you fast, don't don't do it like these jokers who let everybody know they're fasting. You know, they try to look sloppy. Hey, did you know I'm fasting Monday and Thursday? Aren't you impressed with how spiritual I am? I know, pretty holy. No, no, no. Wash your face and don't let anybody know. It's between you and the Lord. And here, he's addressing it again in a different way. He's not fasting. He and his disciples, it's their pattern to feast. Indeed, they are pictured just prior, right? Eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, and so you can see his violation of this custom probably a little irksome even to John's disciples. I think today they might have, you could sort of picture them standing on the outside of a, of a party, arms crossed and lips pursed, gazing in. They've got their cell phone in one hand. You know, they're, they're memeing it up. They've got pictures of Jesus. They're like, the narrow way, you know, a little eye roll emoji, something like that. It's really hard discipleship to Jesus. Guys, they're not even fasting. It's a bit bothersome. And you know this to be true. You have little customs in your own life that if people don't follow, it bothers you. I think one for me was uh, when I got married, and I think this happens to most married people, you discover that your spouse has some things about them that you don't really like, right? It's true. Uh, one in my case was uh, there is a sort of proper protocol when it comes to the distribution of toothpaste. And you all know this. You're, you're here on Christmas morning, and so I'm sure you are the kind of right and wholly upstanding citizens who squeeze the toothpaste from the back. This just makes sense, right? It drives all the toothpaste to the front, nice and clean. Keeps everybody young and paced, right? Well, you know, I learned, at least for part of my marriage, I think I've corrected this, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that maybe my wife was one of these, you know, deranged animals that just picks up the toothpaste and starts squeezing it, sends it everywhere. Unbelievable, you know? And you go like, this is bothersome. Maybe you have something else that your spouse does. I don't think Chelsea does that anymore. I'm not even sure if she did it initially. I'm going to find out soon, though. But let's just stick, we'll just stick with the illustration here. You have things that you like to do, that you like done in a particular way. And when it doesn't fall out that way, you get upset. The Pharisees, and we learn from other accounts, it's not just uh, John the Baptist's disciples. They're there. They've thrown their lot in with the Pharisees and, and the scribes. They're all upset about what Jesus is doing. And their question is coming to him this way. If you are so good, if you're one of the good people, you should be fasting. So why aren't you fasting? Why 
Are you feasting? And, and before we, we look at Jesus' answer, I think we ought to consider some of the dangers for ourselves. It is easy for Christians to pick up possible applications of a biblical text and to try to make those possible applications the responsibility of all other Christians. So, uh, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Or, I'm going to mess it up, one of the Timothys, he says, hey, do your best to present yourself as a workman approved to the Lord. And so some Christians throughout history have sort of uh, understood that to mean one of the ways I'm going to apply this, I'm going to give my best to God in everything that I do. And so that means on a Sunday morning, I am going to be dressed in my Sunday best. I'm going to wear a suit. I'm going to wear a tie. I'm going to bring glory to God in what I'm doing in the way I'm dressed on a Sunday morning. Praise God. Hallelujah. But they get sideways when what they are trying to offer to God as worship, this custom, well, it's flipped into a command so that when somebody shows up to church, say in flannel, they have broken the law of God. This is bothersome. Friends, we, we must be careful not to turn our preferences into precepts not to turn our customs into commands or even occasions for pride. God, thank you. I am not like other men and women who skip the Lord's Day gathering on Christmas Day. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that, you know, I wear my Sunday best. And I don't, I don't have a TV in my house because I don't, I don't want to be potentially covet when those car commercials come on. Praise God, I'm so good. Oh, friends, self-righteousness is self-condemnation. We are so prone to trusting in ourselves and in our performances, puffing our chests out in pride. Just as they turn fasting into an occasion for boasting, we, we too turn good spiritual disciplines into occasions for trusting in ourselves instead of our Savior. Be warned. They're upset because they're following this old Jewish custom, something old, for those of you playing along, and Jesus, well, he's doing something new. He's doing something new. Why don't you and your disciples fast like all the good people? And Jesus says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You're in a wedding party, you and a handful of others. And you're upset about this whole deal, really. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, your, it's your best friend's wedding day, but... Um, you're not enthused about the whole thing. And so what you and the rest of the wedding party agree to do is you show up to the event uh, in all black. You even got some eye black on to show that you are in mourning. Uh, some of you, even the, the women, have shaved their heads, okay? Throughout the whole ceremony, you, you don't stand next to the bride and groom. You, you lay on the ground and you weep and wail. 
dog. What was? We're going to lose our precious dog. Weep and wail. And then at, at the reception, you request dirges be played on the bagpipes, like it was for the queen. You're continuing to, to weep and wail. Instead of best man speech, uh, there's eulogies are delivered. Doug was a wonderful person. We all know that. But he met Cindy. And you even get to the point, you're like, you know what? We are not even going to eat any of the food. It would be totally inappropriate, right? The fasting and the mournful behavior doesn't fit the event. Acting as if you are at a funeral when you are at a wedding is out of place. It doesn't match. Showing up at a wedding in raggedy old clothes, even if you've tried to patch them up with new cloth, is out of place. Showing up to a wedding with a half-drunk bottle of wine, it's out of place. A little mismatch. Yes, you need wine and clothes at a wedding, but you need the right wine. You need the right clothes those which are fitting to an occasion. This new occasion where the promise of engagement gives way to marriage. It's fulfilled in the marriage. This is a little bit what Jesus is getting at uh, in his two illustrations that he offers to us in verses 16 and 17. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both, that's the new wine and the new wineskins, are preserved. So, so Jesus, just to, to paraphrase, these things would have been more familiar to his culture. He says, everyone knows that if you use a new cloth to patch up old clothes, you're going to end up with a worse tear. Everyone knows that if you put new wine into old wineskins, you're going to end up with a Mentos into Coke situation. You could, this is just for extra, I guess. Uh, wineskins, we don't act this way anymore. It sounds probably gross to us, but you take an animal, a dead one, and, and you'd skin it, and you'd plug up the necessary holes, and you would leave one opening, usually at the neck, and into there you would put your, what was going to be your wine. And as it fermented, it would expand, and the animal skin would expand, and then you would be good to go. You could drink it. But if you tried to use an animal skin more than once, it only had so much sort of plasticity in it. It would burst. It would break. So Jesus is saying, right, uh, you take your Mentos and you dump it in the Coke and you shake it up, you're going to have an explosion on your hands. What he's doing with these illustrations, he's saying, these things are not fitting of the time. These things are not fitting of this occasion, this season. So he's answering their question with a twofold answer. Saying, firstly, and we're going to come back to this, it is inappropriate for my disciples to fast when I'm with them. Right? The wedding party shouldn't fast when the bridegroom is present. Grieving in the presence of the groom is prohibited. Secondly, it is inappropriate for his disciples to follow old Jewish customs 
and to try to bring them forward into the new covenant and kingdom that he has inaugurated. In other words, the promises of the old covenant find their fulfillment in Jesus. And it is foolish to try to live as if Jesus has not come. Right? The engagement of the old covenant is fulfilled in the establishment of the new. The old relationship is fulfilled and gives way to the new marriage. Right? So just like it would be inappropriate for a newly married couple to live separately and to continue acting as if they were not married, so too it would be inappropriate to live as if the Messiah had not come. Therefore, Jesus' disciples do not fast. These things don't go together. Jesus, uh, you know, at this point, instead of using this illustration, he could have just sang that old song from Bob Dylan to make his point, right? He could could have said, come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a-changing. The bridegroom is on the scene. The prince who was promised has shown up, for unto us a child is born. The celebration is started, and Jesus picks and uses this wedding imagery on purpose. Three reasons I'm going to give you. First, to correct the disciples of John the Baptist. Secondly, to emphasize the need to celebrate in his presence. And thirdly, to lay claim to deity. First, you will remember that John the Baptist said this to his disciples about Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And so it's almost like Jesus picks up on this imagery and says to those disciples of John the Baptist, hey, do you remember when your teacher told you that I'm the bridegroom and that he's sort of the best man and he rejoices that I'm here? He's making himself less. He's making me more. Well, that's, that needs to be your posture. You all should not be worried about the fact that I'm not fasting. You should be feasting together with me and my disciples. You've got it twisted. Secondly, I think he uses this imagery because nothing in the ancient world, and maybe even in the modern world, was quite as boisterous and joyous as a wedding. In the first century, weddings would be like, I guess some people do destination weddings now, but it's like, imagine you go somewhere uh, for a week-long celebration. This is what happened in the ancient world. It would be in a, a Jewish village. It would last seven days. You'd have friends and guests. They would all show up, and they would have absolutely no responsibilities except to enjoy the festivities. There'd be an abundance of food and wine, song and dance, and there would be fun in the house and out onto the streets. Jesus wants those 
who are in his presence to rejoice. He's telling them it is a time for joy. I wonder, Christian, how is your joy? Christians are to be a joyful people, to be characterized by it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul writes, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Be joyful always. James tells us to consider it pure joy when we are in the midst of trials because we know those trials are from the Lord. Are you joyful? Jesus is challenging them to recognize that he is among them, he is with them, and therefore they should be rejoicing. He also lays claim to deity. You see, the only person that is called a bridegroom in the Bible, or pictured as a bridegroom, I should say, is God himself. I'm going to read you three quick passages from the Old Testament to, to show you this. Isaiah Chapter 54 and verse 5, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62, 5, this one should shock you, it got me this week a little bit, but listen, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isn't that crazy, church? We're the bride of Christ, and God rejoices over us. It's amazing. Last one, Hosea 2, 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, Jesus is just quoted from Hosea, remember, just, just prior, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Hosea 6. The whole context of Hosea is God is showing his people what his relationship with them is like. Hosea is commanded to take to himself an adulterous wife who's going to be unfaithful, and yet God continues to be faithful. His love persists. He even buys Gomer, his people, back from slavery. It's in that context we read, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, the false god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Which takes us to that second half of verse 15, where Jesus tells us there is going to be a season when his disciples mourn. Something is going to be borrowed. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus knows he is going to the cross. He knows he will be taken when Judas betrays him. Matthew 26, verse 49. And he came up to Jesus, that's Judas, at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. To take him to Calvary's hill. To take him to the cross. To take him to the grave. Why? So that he could save sinners. Jesus goes to the cross, allows himself to be taken so that we can be joined to him and enjoy his life. So that what is his perfect righteousness can become ours. And so that what is ours can become his. Our sin debts, our offense against God. Think of it like this, like a Cinderella situation. Imagine a poor peasant girl. She's got nothing to her name. She comes from a a shameful family and background, and she's got no prospects for anything good to happen. She's down and out. She's in a a Cinderella-like situation. She's got a, a shameful family, debts upon debts that she could never pay. And yet, a rich prince sets his eye on her. He fancies her and offers himself to her in marriage. But what happens when the peasant is married to the prince? All of her debts become his. And all of his riches become hers. She is brought into a new family. She is given a new name. She is given all the wealth of royalty. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens to us in the gospel. We are joined with Adam in poverty and in sin and in shame, and we have no hope. And the Prince of Heaven comes, takes hold of us, and pulls us out of our sin and shame and debt. He takes all of our debts and he pays for them with his blood so that we can be forgiven. He gives us all of his riches so that we can know God as Father. Indeed, his Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. We we have all the riches of heaven. This is good news that comes to us only because Jesus came at Christmas so that he might be crucified, buried, and raised at Easter. Indeed, there would come a time for weeping among the disciples of Jesus. John Chapter 20, verse 11 through 14. But that weeping 
that would only tarry for a night or two, three. It came in the morning. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped and stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away, notice this, taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. This is a king who has the authority to lay his life down and authority to take it up again. Joy followed. The morning. Jesus told them it would be so. John 16, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Church, Jesus Christ is risen. He is with us. He's with us in the incarnation. He is our king. He is a man. He became incarnate. He became like us in the incarnation so that we can become like him in resurrection. He's with us. He's with us in his Holy Spirit who indwells us. We are in the presence of the bridegroom. And he has given to us an untakeable joy a joy that cannot be snatched away by the world, by worries, by persecutions, or even by death. The bridegroom has hold of us, his bride, and no one is going to take us out of his hands. Indeed, he is going to take us out of the grave and into eternal life. Friends, this morning is a time for celebration, a time for joy, and a time for feasting. And so we come to the Lord's table to to raise a cup of wine in anticipation of that wine we will drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We come not to fast this morning, but to feast in the presence of our Lord as we eat and drink in the presence of Jesus, of his body in his blood. We come to the table this morning toasting to our great God and King. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son through whom we can know you. 
Fill us with your spirit. Let us enjoy the delights of being in your presence together this morning. Let the tone and tenor of our lives be joy in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.